Thanks for checking in with the Records and Riffs podcast. I'm Matt Norlander. For those who are here specifically because you are a big fan of Drew McGarry's writing, welcome. And I am right there with you, and that's exactly why I wanted to get Drew on this podcast. I've long been a reader of Drew's going back more than a decade now since uh, he really started going at Deadspin. And as of late, he has written for Gen Mag and for Vice in addition to being uh, a pretty fantastic author in his own right. So I was all too eager to give him an opportunity to talk about his latest book. And the first 15 minutes of the podcast are related to his writing, the book, and his process and all of that. Before we get to uh, the primary objective of the podcast, and that would be talking about the music and career of Bob Mould, who of course was a founding member and integral part of Husker Du, which dissolved in the late 80s, and then Mould had a brief turn for three years as the primary uh, creative force behind the band Sugar, which put out an album in 1992 called Copper Blue, and that is probably the most commercially accessible and certainly successful album that Mold has ever been a part of. So one thing I love about this podcast is certainly if you go back and look at previous episodes, you'll see there are some uh, big names, big artists, big bands, some mainstream stuff, but I do like the opportunity to kind of tap into a band, an artist who's not completely obscure. I mean, Bob Mold has lived comfortably for four decades, essentially, making music, but uh, his songs are not easily found on the radio. Husker Du is certainly a critical darling, but not a band whose music is immediately identifiable to uh, the most recent generation, if not the generation before that, but nonetheless very influential. So when I reached out to Drew, he said, oh, Bob Mould, that's that's definitely who I want to talk about. So very excited um, to get into that with him. You'll learn plenty, and hopefully, you know, you came not just to listen to Drew, but to discover some music that you might not have been too familiar with to begin with. So we're going to get into that right now. My conversation with Drew McGarry. Here it is. I bring in Drew McGarry here. Drew, thank you so much for coming on. For those who don't know, Drew McGarry is an author of five books, three of them novels, and is a writer for Gen Mag and Vice. He's most well-known, I believe, for his irreverent, occasional, all-caps writing for emphasis with humor and introspection at Deadspin, RIP, of course, Real Deadspin. It's a real uh, pleasure to have Drew on the pod to uh, to talk Bob Mould and Husker Du and all that, but also to to promote Point B, a book that I have finished within the previous 24 hours of uh, recording this podcast. Drew, how are you doing? And thank you so much for joining. It depends on whether or not you liked the book. If you didn't like the book, then I'm going to be miserable. But oh. if you liked it, then I'll be I'll be I'll be doing work. I did enjoy the book. I think I think I like the Postmortal the most of your three books. Um, your three novels, if you will. Uh, but point B is certainly interesting. I mean, you've got... It's interesting. All three of those novels, you've got to lean on the the sci-fi, the fantastical, if you will. I mean, the post-mortal, I won't spoil anything, but it's about people who can live forever or choose to do so. The hike right. is about an unexpected dip into an alternate dimension and really has... Your kicker on the hike is one of the best I've I've read. I mean, it's just the ending to that book is fantastic. And then point B is based in no small part on the ability to teleport thanks to phone tech. And uh, there's a love story that's kind of, you know, the backdrop of all of that. But before I get to specifically the, the story of point B here, I just wanted to ask you kind of broadly, Drew, in terms of the tropes of those three novels, if, if what is it about... Um, you know, the surreal or the sci-fi that, that, that makes you lean in and say, this is, this is the tunnel that I want to drive down as I build out my novels. And it does not, it's not necessarily anything deliberate. It's just, um, you know, particularly with 
Postmortal and Point B, those are both sort of social sci-fi books, you know, very much what-if books. Someone once told me that my novels read like uh, a really long answer to a Deadspin fun bag question, which sounds about right. Um, but I found that um, like with those sorts of themes, there's a lot there, like automatically give yourself a lot of meat on the bone. And it's automatically interesting. I'm not, um, I'm actually a very bad novel reader because I find a lot of novels, you can see the writing. It's just someone, you're just someone trying to win an award. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the nice thing about sci-fi and fantasy is that that genre, even though it's, you know, been elevated and co-opted by nerdy dipshits and shit like that, um, you know, it, there is still a fundamental interest in being entertained and entertaining the reader and uh, and keeping things interesting. So, you know, the old Elroy maxim of, you know, cutting all the boring parts out of your book, or it might have been Elmore Leonard. Uh, you know, sci-fi and fantasy make it easy to do that because you can always put a dragon on the next page to keep things interesting. Yeah, the hike's got some of that. One really strong part of your writing and your novels in particular uh, first of all, it's nuts that you just brought up the Elmore Leonard uh, line because I literally thought about that when I was probably about three-fourths of the way through this. There isn't really a, a slow part, a boring part whatsoever. Uh, but with that said, it doesn't feel like you know, you're know you in fifth gear the entire time. But y- your books have a great ability to, you know what, I've got... I've got 10 minutes to squeeze, you know, seven pages in. Or uh, next thing I know, I've looked up and I'm 85 pages gone into this thing. I, you know, I'm sure that's an unintentional skill, but uh, or maybe it is intentional. I don't know. But I, I, I find that whenever I dip into your writing, um, I don't know. I can I can jump out just as easy like as I can jump back in. And I, I think that's maybe a bit of a, a parallel theme with what you've got going on with Point B as is. Oh, thank you. No, I I want everything to read fast, and that goes for blog posts, magazine features, and books. You know, it's um, you know, again, not to go to maxims, but the uh, you know, the old Hollywood screenwriting thing is that you have to give people a reason to keep turning the pages. So I want I want to read fast, and I want to be involved, and it shouldn't really feel like you're reading at all because you're too interested in the story to really note the page numbers and shit like that. So you know, if I've done that, I've done my job. Um, plenty of people that are listening to this podcast will have come specifically because of you. I think you've got a very devoted uh, following, a very devoted readership. And I think that's in part because you have, and th- I mean, Drew, I take this back a decade to with your fun bag stuff. You have a great ability to be, I think, so casually and sometimes in, in a very entertaining way, honest about, like, I can't tell you how many times you've just simply just tossed a line into a fun bag or into a Thursday NFL piece, and you've tapped into an emotion or a reaction to something where I've thought, God damn, like, that is that is so true to to what you're writing, what you're describing there on, on my own personal level. I think that's the, the sign of a really, really good writer. But I say that, I blow smoke up your ass to say, for those that know your work, that found this podcast, I think they probably have read the book at this point, so I need you to loop those who don't know your work, and maybe particularly this book, kind of, you know, do the sell job here. Let's let's just be bald and blatant about it, you know, without giving it away uh, what the book is about and why, you know, why this one, if it is indeed, m- might be your favorite work yet. Yeah, sure. So, all right. So it's just imagine a world about 10 years from now uh, where, uh, you know, you still have your phone, but uh, when you open up maps on your phone and you select a pin on your phone, uh, you can go literally to that place instantly uh, through teleportation. 
uh, you know, what that would do to the world, <laughs> how the world would react. Obviously, it would be an incredible blessing. But as with the advent of the regular ass Internet, uh, it has more than its fair share of drawbacks that were both unforeseen and exploited. Uh, so this would have the same deal. Uh, in the middle of that, uh, there's a girl, 17 years old, named Anna Huff, who, uh, whose sister uh, is murdered uh, as a result of teleportation technology. And so her mom enrolls her at a school where she cannot teleport, where none of the students can teleport. Uh, so that they have essentially what is an analog school experience in a world where such things don't exist anymore. And of course, you know, the second that she gets sent to that school and has to turn in her port phone, what does she want to do? And what do you want her to do? You want her to break out. So uh, she meets uh, her roommate there, who turns out to be uh, heiress to the teleportation empire. She falls in love with her roommate. The roommate disappears. And so, of course, she has all the more reason to break out into the world and find the proverbial needle in the haystack and get into all sorts of fun entanglements and international intrigue along the way. It, uh, it's, yeah, and it, it wastes little time in getting into all of that. The, I think you did a pretty solid job in the book of explaining the world with if it could you know theoretically could have this teleportation technology and and the stuff that would, <laughs> and and the fallout from that like the roads are only used by uh largely automated uh vehicles that are just simply supplying things from one point of the country to the other uh, but right. otherwise like no one no one needs to drive anymore so the roads have crumbling in- infrastructure and a lot of the cities um because people can go anywhere. There are there's what's known as these free zones that can also be dangerous zones. How? My question for you, Drew, is um, when you are storyboarding and you are building this out, and you know you need to build this world and provide windows into what it's like, but you don't want to get too bogged down in too many of the details because you don't. I don't know if you want to get yourself caught in some uh, in some logistic traps. Can you just take us into the writing process of all right? How much do I need to put on the canvas here to allow people to see what it's like without people getting too caught up in like, well, here's a plot hole because of this and this logical fallacy, et cetera, et cetera. I think I I struggled with that more on Postmortal, which is my first novel um it had it was overstuffed the first draft was overstuffed and and much longer than the original what what ended up being published uh because i would go on tangents to describe sort of certain aspects of the world but they would go too long and then i would have to condense them down uh but this one um because I, when i was writing the postmortal, i sort of intended it to be a story of the world and the story of the character was almost sort of incidental to that in the first draft which was bad uh this one needed to be a lot more character driven and a lot more on the focus on in, on the story of an individual, and so nat just naturally in terms of you know what my intentions were, I you know I was so focused on the story of Anna Huff that when I took a couple of detours, you know I made sure that that they were threaded back into the story later on, and they, it wasn't just to illustrate the world, but to, but they they played a they factored in somehow into the story down the line because that, that's something that I've gotten better at as I've written more novels and more books is just, you know, I, I think the, the big criticism that some of my work got before, uh, was that is a word the publishers use, which is episodic where it's, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, things happen in sequential order in the book, but they don't necessarily, uh, connect back to each other. It's just sort of this, then this, then this, then this, then this, um, that, uh, that doesn't happen in this book. Everything is a lot more intertwined. And, you know, so, so when I wrote it, I, I didn't, I don't storyboard, I don't outline. I just was very, very focused on the characters and 
and having them interpret that world through mostly through their eyes instead of uh, doing more uh, word of God type shit. Dig it. Um, yeah, no, it's very, very character driven around the, the primary character. Although because of your, <laughs> I will say because of your writing style, um, I pictured, it's it's funny sometimes when you read novels and then just, I, I think it's just a, a natural byproduct. Like you'll sometimes inadvertently, a character, someone you know or or someone famous, their face will become attached to that character. I don't know if that ever happens with you. but Yeah, you, ca- you cast it in your head. Yeah. yeah, so you were actually Paul Bammer in the book to me. Uh, because he's not based on me, which is right. And then at the end of the book, in your acknowledgments, you actually acknowledge that the character is based on an actual real person, which I found to be uh, pretty interesting and pretty funny. Um, well, what's funny is that it, he's named after a, a real person I know and has some there's some aspects of the real Paul Bammer in, in the character of Paul Bammer, but also he's, he's based a lot on my friend Spencer Hall, who used to run There You Go Every Day Should Be Saturday over at SB Nation. But he actually left SB Nation yes. this week or last week. Yes, uh, Spencer Hall, one of the very best uh, writers on the internet, no doubt about it. Um, you had a, you know, you had a life scare. Uh, I guess halfway through, nearly completing this book. Um, when for those listening, I will include a link to this uh, extremely well-regarded piece essay, however you want to refer to it, that you wrote at at uh, Real Deadspin called uh, "The Night the Lights Went Out." I believe it was called. Um, Correct. And just, you know, incredible detail, one, because of the fact that your brain just broke on you unexpectedly uh, near Christmas. Yep. And um, before I ask you, I want to ask you I, I just on a, on a personal level, when that happened, um, obviously most people didn't realize what the hell was going on. And then there was a tweet that got sent, I think, by Megan Greenwell, who was the EIC of Deadspin at the time, who said, we're all praying for Drew right now. And then... I had texted Will Leach, who I know really well, and obviously who you know really well. I was like, I don't know what's going on, but uh, I hope all is well. And at the time, um, you know, Will had been, was some, said something along the lines of, you know, we are just, uh, you know, thinking of his family and hoping that this can be okay. And I was like, oh, God. Um, so it's a pleasure, honor, and a true privilege to have you on the pod here, Drew, because I know you went through something so um, extremely traumatic. I don't, you know... If you want to recount some of that stuff, feel free to do it here. But I, the point of my question and my way too long-winded setup here is how much of the book had you completed at the point of that episode? And did any of your brain trauma actually affect the writing process or where you were at that point in the story? Okay, I was two chapters away from finishing the first draft when I suffered a catastrophic brain hemorrhage December of 2018. Uh, and then, so I had the brain hemorrhage. I was in a coma for two weeks. I woke up from the coma. I, I thought it was the next day. And they're like, no, no, you're in a coma for two weeks. And I was like, well, shit, I want to finish the book. And, uh, and then I, I got back and I finished, uh, I finished the book. Uh, there's not a ton, if any, of what happened to me in the book, like a couple of things, like how I think about death is in there a little bit. Um, and frankly, uh, I'm writing a book out of that essay uh, about uh, about my injury and the year uh, the year that I took to recover, um, and that that'll be out in 2021. And so I was sort of like the, my 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 publisher for that because Point B is self published. This one has a real publisher. A publisher for that was like, we we own your brain. Please don't please don't use your brain in other things. I was like, all right, that's fine, that's fine. 
So, um, but even before even before that book deal, I had a very very clear image of what I want, how I wanted that story to end. When I was two chapters away. I knew what the chapters were going to be, mm. and what happened to me in the interim did not really affect that much in any way. It made me. Uh, plus, uh, the other thing, mostly, I just enjoyed being in the world a lot. Like it, you know, it was, it's a teenage love story, so I felt young writing it. Which it's good to feel young when. You've had a hemorrhage that leaves you half deaf and without a sense of smell, and you feel like a million years old. Yeah, that's uh, well, that's good to hear. And yeah, it's it's amazing um, that you're back and you still you're you as far <laughs> this first time we've ever spoken. But your writing is uh is not dropped off whatsoever, and very much looking forward to uh to the book. Where can people since this is a self published deal, and uh, and some I think are might be conflicted about whether or not I ordered it on on Amazon because I think that was the first time the print version is available. I gotta correct. Know, I can't I can't do the uh, the Kindle. I gotta I gotta have the actual pages. I gotta flip through them. So if they want to order Point B or, or any of your books, what are the, what are the best outlets to do that? Oh yeah, uh, that's easy. You go to Amazon. It has paperback or Kindle. Uh, it's at Google Play. Mm-hmm. It's at Apple. Uh, it's at Barnes and Noble, and that is. Uh, that has paperback. Actually, doesn't have an ebook, just paperback. And then also uh, a place called uh, Angus and Robertson. I think that's internet. Some, I think it's like Australia's like bookshop or something. And then something called Kobo, and I don't know what that is either. I just got out to as many places as I could. Dig it. All right. Well, if you've come to this podcast and you are not familiar with Drew McGarry's work, he does get a high endorsement. That's why he's on the podcast. And uh, in fact, the book starts with a quote from uh, Bob Mould and his band Sugar. Before we get to all the Bob Mould stuff, I need you to rank these music bobs. Mould, Marley, Weir, Seeger, Dylan. In order, Drew McGarry, five bobs. Mould, Marley, Weir, Seeger, Dylan. What's your order? Weir, Seeger, Dylan. Okay, Mould's number one. Marley's number two. Dylan's number three. Seeger's number four. And then Weir is number five. Right, That's why I would. Not like. a big uh, dead fan. I, 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 no, I, I fucking I, hate the dead. <laughs> you, hate, you fucking hate the dead. I might, I might put Dylan ahead of Marley. I can't quite decide. All right, good deal. I have, n- I've yet to listen to Dylan's seventeen-minute song about the killing of JFK, which is there have been a couple of uh, music releases in the past month plus that have gotten plenty of buzz. One of them, Bob Mould, and we will get to that. But Dylan, yeah. Dylan, just whipping out, you know. Another opus out of nowhere uh, has been another one. Um, okay, so yeah, I asked Drew to come on, push his book, let's talk music, <laughs> and he's like, oh, Bob Mould, that's easy. So you are a child of Minnesota, yeah. and Husker Du formed there in the late 70s and uh, came to prominence, uh, most notably with Zen Arcade in the, in the mid-80s, and then... Um, Husker Du was around until about 87 or so, and then they broke up, molded some solo stuff. He created Sugar. That lasts for three years, and then he has been uh, flying solo here for well over two decades. Um, but before we get into any certain phases and we talk favorite records and all of that, um, you know, why why Bob Mold? Well, you know, why Bob Mold slash Husker slash Sugar? Uh, is this your favorite artist of all time? Is there a particular reason? The floor is now yours. You can spare no words. Oh, he's my favorite artist of all time. Like, I remember uh, Twitter was arguing, because every Twitter argument gets recycled every few years just because people don't remember the last time they argued about it. But it was, you know, we all know the greatest British rock bands like the Beatles and the Stones, but what's the greatest American rock band? 
Uh, and, you know, people were saying, like, Bruce Springsteen, that doesn't really count because he's him. And then, like, mm-hmm. some, you know, like every old boomer is like, Aerosmith. Ah. Um, but to me, it was clearly any any band that Bob had been in at any time. Because uh, I don't – my roommate in college, Kevin, like, I had heard Husker do when I was in Minnesota because my babysitter, who was also my football coach – uh, played him in the car, and I was like, this is cool, I like it. I never bought the tape, even though I should have. And then when I got to college, uh, my roommate had all of Sugar's CDs, and he was playing it, and I was like, what's this? This is fucking awesome. He's like, this is Sugar. And I didn't you know, I didn't, I didn't know that Sugar and Husker Du were, were led by the same dude. Um, but I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And my friend Kevin was like, yeah, yeah, he used to he used to be part of Fusker Du, and I was like, hey, I like that band, too. And so all of a sudden, all at once, I was like, well, this is my favorite artist. Because, first of all, it was loud, mm. and the riffs are really great. And he's singing about extremely painful personal things. But then uh, but melody and uh, sort of the anthemic quality of Bob's work never goes away. So it could be the most depressing thing in the world, but he's always going to kick it in overdrive on the chorus, and it's just going to be like the sunniest like most alive shit you ever heard. That's why I love him. Yeah, he's, um, you know, I re- I'm not overly familiar with with his solo work. Uh, I, knew, I knew Copper Blue from Sugar, which is, Copper Blue is probably, I didn't look this up, but I think Copper Blue is probably his most commercially successful album of anything he's done. Zen Ar- I think so, yeah. Zen Arcade with Husker Du is the most critically acclaimed um, and that was really the record that put Husker Du, I think, on the map, if you will. So I was f- I'm familiar with Husker to a bit and, sh- and Sugar a little bit. Mold stuff I when we knew I knew we were gonna do this pod, I I really dove in and 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 uh, listened to a lot more. The only thing that I had seriously listened to, I think, more than three or four times ever in my life, was Silver Age because it was pretty acclaimed. That came out in 2012. We'll get to that eventually. Um, but for those who are like this is a fun podcast for me because I think this is a podcast where, like, I think Bob Mold is probably alternative, alternative rock. Like he's outside the periphery. Husker Du has its own reputation for its influence, and I think its significance in the '80s and how it's set up um, to a certain extent. The alternative movement of the '90s and Nirvana obviously frequently referenced uh, Mold and Husker Du's influence on them and, and the precedent they set, but. Broadly speaking, and it, listen, he's got, Mold's got, jeez, oh I mean, 25, 30 records total to his name at this point. Uh, how would you describe his approach to the form on the whole overall for those that might not be familiar with him, might know a little Husker, might not know any Husker, any Sugar? How would you describe what, uh, you know, kind of go a little bit deeper into uh, what makes him so good and how a casual person who might not be familiar with him in the bands might be intrigued by it? Well, Husker Du is generally regarded as one of the most important punk bands uh, of the of the 1980s. And one of the things that set them apart from other punk bands was their sense of melody. So, and Bob has said this himself that he writes he writes pop songs, which is not uh, all that different from how the Ramones approached pop. You know, because essentially Ramones songs were really loud and really fast, but they were they were a lot like a lot of times like sort of like surf songs, like they were very simple melodic tunes and that's why they were so good because it had the punk aesthetic it was loud it was abrasive but then there was also this underlying sweet melody underneath it that made it 
that made it into it. You know, it, it was it was an easy way in to the music where you know there were hooks all over the place. Like I need songs with hooks. I don't like prog rock. I don't like jazz. I fucking hate the dead. I want you in and out in four, three or four minutes, and then I want you to leave. And who's going to do was really good at that. And Bob was really good at that. And so they had, you know, they had the sort of garage production. I mean, every Husker Du album sounds like it was produced inside a toilet. And to, much to the band's regret, they wish they wanted to remaster it. But all the songs themselves, if they had been, you know, if, if, if they had been recorded in some, you know, really nice Berlin studio or something, they would have sounded absolutely like stellar radio songs. Mm. So it had that nice... Had a nice push and pull where, you know, like I said, it's discordant. It's right? Greg Cott, who was a, a music critic, did the liner notes for Beaster, which is my favorite Sugar album. And he said it was, you know, there it was beauty torn from violence. And that's that's I like the, I like the contrast. That's what I like about it. If uh, I'm going to name off a few bands that I think could be entry points uh, for Husker or Sugar or Bob Mold and then it, there are any others let me know um that you think are kind of adjacent i'd say the replacements that's kind of an obvious one uh, yeah given where they both i think that's just i also think it's undeniable uh both from minnesota but the replacements who are similar to husker in that these they are both bands uh critically acclaimed but never commercially broke through um in some ways they actually have interesting parallel stories in the way that they uh formed and then and then dissolved although the replacements um lasted a bit longer. I think the Hold Steady is a more modern, uh, somewhat parallel. Afghan Wigs, uh, I think I think Afghan Wigs in terms of what Mold and some of what Sugar was doing in the 90s might have a little bit there. Um, not a Surf. And then I think some of Mold's solo stuff has influence on what Dave Grohl has done with the Foo Fighters. If you're looking for a really mainstream band, they are not the same at all, but I definitely can hear some influence there. And then, in particular, um, I think that when you look at Husker and you and you go to something like F Flip Your Wig, uh, to me, uh, album like that, maybe Candy Apple Grey, I know you and you both are big Queens of the Stone Age fans. Like I, th I hear three or four tunes on Candy Apple Grey, and I'm like, you can draw a direct line from what Husker is doing on this and its influence over what uh, Queens of the Stone Age are doing. So I don't know if you would agree with that or not, but are there any other artists um, in addition to that do you think uh, could be good entry points to, uh, to discovering any of Mold's work? They kind of got big at the same time as the Pixies, or maybe a little bit before the Pixies, but they get linked a lot with the Pixies. Uh, and then you're talking about the uh, Foo Fighters. Uh, Dave Roll said he is directly influenced by Mold. And to that end, uh, Mold does the uh, help sing the chorus on one of their songs. It's called Dear Rosemary. I'm going to get the – I think it's on Wasting it Light. It is on Wasting Light, yes. Uh, yeah, it's a good song. I it like is. it. Yeah. Um, so like like a lot of that Foo Fighters stuff, even more so than Nirvana, although Bob was also a candidate to produce Nevermind uh, before Butch Vig did. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, I know Nirvana was extremely influenced by them, but even more so the Foo Fighters because Foo Fighters make a more like, obviously Nirvana was a huge band, but the, just the sound of Foo Fighters is more mainstream than Nirvana's. It's like, it's a bit more studio polish. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And, and that studio polish is actually the, the spirit of mold songwriting, which is very, very hook driven. Uh, you know, that, that 
that lends itself very well to the kind of commercial rock that, that Foo Fighters make. Um, what's, uh, it's, it's funny you mentioned the stuff with Husker and how it, how it was recorded, when it was recorded. I think there's I think it's a lot like the early REM records where um, because of specifically the way that it sounds, it almost actually enhances its legacy overall. But um, I've always wondered, uh, just the, the ties that bind here, like that's what Husker wanted to do. And then Mold doesn't win out on uh, getting to produce Nevermind. And then after the fact, the band, or at least Kurt for sure, was never really happy with how that record sounded. So I've always wondered, had Bob gotten to, you know, like they repeated the process and I had Bob actually gotten to, you know, produce Nevermind. The songs are the songs. Like it would have still been a great album. How would it have sounded? Would have it, you know, increased its legacy if that's even possible or given it a different kind of sound? I've always wondered about that though uh, because Butch obviously did a really good job, but the band wasn't totally satisfied with the way that it sounded afterward, you know? It's funny that they weren't satisfied because it was one of the biggest albums of all time. So it's, okay. I think it had, there was too much of a sheen on it, you know. They, now at that uh, that actually was one of the things Bob said when uh, when they interviewed him about not producing the record. He said he would it would have sounded a lot raw. It would have sounded so. It probably in his hands, and I don't mean this is a slight on him. It probably wouldn't have been as popular of an album because he might have made it so raw as to be not quite as accessible. But of course. You know, again, one of the reasons I like him is that he has a bit of polish on raw sound. So maybe maybe it still would have been the hugest thing ever. I don't know. Yeah. Um, how many times, if you have, have you gotten to see Bob in concert? And what are those experiences like if you've seen him? Oh, God, like a dozen. Okay. I've seen him more in concert than, than any other band. Because, like, usually I don't see bands multiple times all that often. Because I'm lazy and I'm cheap and... <laughs> You know, and certain bands, it's like, okay, I saw them once, and, like, they'll always do the same set list every time. So right. it's like, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. Bob was different because, Bob, uh, when I was living in New York uh, two decades ago was when he was living in New York, too. And so he would do a lot of uh, quick pop-up shows around the area, and I would follow him around and just do, you know, wherever he was in New York, I would watch him play. And then and then ever since then, I've, I've seen him every time he's come around town. So he'll play something from the albums, and he is – you know, this is very boomer in me, but like, I think his current work is as alive and vital as the stuff he's done in the past. So I always like going and seeing the new stuff. It's not like I go and like, I'm waiting for him to play, like see a little light from like 25 years ago. Like I, I want to hear the new, the new songs. Yeah. See a little lights. Uh, maybe his most popular solo song. Oh, I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I don't think there's any question. I think, yeah, that's off of, uh, Workbook. Workbook, which is, was his first solo album after uh, Husker Du wound up dissolving. Um, I've never seen Bob live. Uh, for most of the shows that you've seen, is it um, is it a step above? A, like I don't I don't know if he's playing like a Beacon Theater type, but is it is it a step above a club? Like what are the venues that? What's his sweet spot? What is what is his crowd like, or what has it been like as you as you've seen? Because here's here's a guy who is no doubt about it a, a punk rock alternative alternative rock legend who's been going consistently dude has made a record uh like clockwork every two to three years almost without exception for more than 30 years so you build up a certainly a devoted fan base i don't know if that's a an aged uh mid to late 50s white man fan base at this point or if it's if it's more diverse than that but what uh, what are the crowds like and what are the venues that he usually plays what are those uh, usually like like the last time i saw him i think it was at 9 30 club here in dc so okay. he does the like the 930 Club Irving Plaza level of clubs. So it's like a thousand people, which is sort of just the right venue. Like I like that kind of venue pretty much more than any other 
way to see a concert. Uh, it tends to be, yeah, it tends to be fairly, it tends to be a fairly older crowd. Um, but not necessarily, I mean, it, for a while, I'm going to go off the, the rails now, but like, please, toward, do. please in do. 1998, uh, he released an album called The Last Dog and Pony Show, and that was going to be his last album with a band and playing the electric guitar because he was getting into, um, he was getting into uh, electronic music and, and he was DJing and shit like that. And he also, he actually he put out an entire album uh, as a DJ called Loud Bomb, which is Bob Mould rearranged into, into Loud Bomb. And, and he had, was going to swear off doing uh, rock music basically for the rest of his life. Thankfully, he did not do that. Uh, but, um, so, but while he was doing that, while he was, while he was on that kick, his crowds were a little younger. And there's no doubt about it that it was gayer because he's obviously an openly gay man, but also he was hosting down here when he was living here in D.C., he was hosting, a, I want to say it was a weekly party or at least a monthly party at the 930 Club called Blow Off with a DJ called Richard Morell. And it was essentially, it was, a, it was a party for gay people. And and so he would attract that crowd too. But since he has gravitated back towards electric rock in the style of the of the rock that he did in the 80s and 90s, I, I don't know that that, I don't know, I don't know that crowd has stuck around as much, although I'm, I'm sure the people that saw him do his electronic stuff heard a lot of his rock stuff and was like, "Oh, this is good too." Mm. How? Uh, yeah, he runs antithetical to the idea of, you know, a gay man in music, if you will, and it's 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 entirely too restrictive of a of a mainstream viewpoint. But he he rocks the fuck out, dude. I mean, he's got he's got tremendous, as you mentioned, he's got tremendous riffs and how. I view it as a as a very positive thing, and that it's 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 been just like barely an aside, you know that uh, that he just happens he just happens to be a gay man. Like I think Bob Mould is the ideal of where we want to get to in society, if you will, where your sexual orientation doesn't need to be the headlining thing. It has its positives when you're trying to get to a certain place and trying to make that the widespread, you know acceptable entry point if you will right drew but it almost feels like he is a, a lot of what we like to pretend and wish society could be at a certain point where <coughs> your sexual orientation should not matter whether or not people are interested in your art or not and it seems like he just seems to be ahead of that pace which i think is a good thing well also um he was actually publicly outed against his wishes by spin magazine in the late 1990s that i, I did not know when- was he really he was. I can't remember the exact year. He wrote a song about it, too. It was a B-side called Eternally Fried that was really, really good. Huh, okay. Um, he, he did not uh, want to be out at the time. He was. I don't think he regrets since then. You know, I, I, I'm sure he, he's a happily out man now. He doesn't care now. Um, but when you say that, like, that his sexuality doesn't matter, well, of course it matters. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like it shouldn't. It it's shouldn't not a, be. How about this? It's not a marketing or selling point of his art, though, you know? No, 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 it's not. It's not. And it you're right. It's you know, his the heartache and the and the pain in his songs is universal because love is love and you people are people. Um and you know, it, it shouldn't have taken as many decades as it took uh for you know pop culture to understand that. But the, you know, we're now we're at the part, you know, of pop culture where that is something of an understanding. Uh and so all of his stuff 
has aged impeccably, uh, you know, in, in light of that, because it was always ahead of its time in, in that regard. It was always very much, you know, I can say this right, but, it, it, you know, it was it was it was always universal, universally true, all of his work, you know, no matter who you were or where you came from. And uh, and that remains true today. He, his songwriting, um, we talked a little bit about the riffs, um, but I, I actually have always appreciated, I say always, as I, as I knew what Husker was, and then when I came to really listen to more of his stuff, his ability to, like he, when I think of people or bands that can use a 12 string in a right way, like I think of, of what Bob did uh, with a lot of his, with a lot of his solo stuff. I just think there's a lot of dynamism there and it's not necessarily soft, loud, soft, loud, uh, you know, to use a, to use a trope that I think Nirvana popularized as much as any other band, but it's more like he can make hard rock, sound soft and i don't say that in a denigrating way like you listen to a lot of his solo stuff and it's just got a certain intricacy to it that i think makes it more approachable if you kind of understand with with what i'm going with there drew yeah yeah there's sort of like an underlying sweetness to it yes uh yeah is good i like that like one of the reasons i like queens of the stone age more than other metal bands is that i actually don't like and this is uh, a common trope but like a lot of metal bands I want to call it the Cookie Monster vocalist, where I yes. and it's not really discernible from the rest of the, you know, the the rest of the instrumentation going on. Whereas Queens of the Stone Age, Josh Ami is sweetly is uh, sweetly crooning over, you know, over very very heavy stuff, and that makes it interesting. Um, so I that that's where I gravitate towards. So, you know, when Bob is, you know, shredding his face off, and his fingers are just bleeding and raw from beating the shit out of his guitar but he's singing just this achingly sweet melody over it, then that's where it hits me. Right, right in the guts. Yeah, that's great. How much do you, how much do you appreciate the fact that Bob has, con- like, to me, he is uh, something of a rarity here. Not uh, longevity and consistency, I think, more than anything. Because if you listen to a lot of his personal discography, um, I just don't fi- like. I don't find that there are significant dips. Yes, everyone's going to have favorites, and there's going to be. I think within the fan base, there's going to become something of a hierarchy with his records. But and I could listen. If you think he's got an outright stinker among his rock records, obviously feel free to share it. But um, as I toured through a lot of what he's done, I didn't get to all of them, but I listened to uh, many of them, eight or nine of them, like two or three times in the past uh, week and a half or so. Um, there just seems to be consistency there. So how appreciative are you that your favorite? artist ever is, is still going and still seems to be like you know pedal to the metal no signs of stopping we're, we're in the midst of what really looks like it could be the the most important uh civil rights movement ever even maybe more than the late 60s uh you know comes from minnesota where we have the murder of george floyd he puts out a two and a half minute song that speaks to the moment immediately uh that's got to be absolute kick-ass from from anyone who has followed and loved the man's music for more than more than two decades right drew oh yeah i mean i'm biased but you know he released the new the new single i've actually heard the whole album blue hearts it's out in september and it's it's great because he's sick so brag through <laughs> sick brag. You're on the inner circle. So nice. Well I, you know what? I was totally, it was one of the most, I got an email from one of those people saying you made the short list to, to get his record in advance. It was like one of the most professional, biggest professional thrills I ever had. <laughs> but yeah, I was listening to, 
I was listening to the album and I liked it. And then I watched the lyric video for American Crisis. That's the one that's on Spotify and the video came out now. And and obviously I couldn't make out the lyrics on the initial album because, you know, Bob tends to mix his voice down uh, with so the guitars stand out the most. So I didn't make necessarily make out the lyrics. And then the lyrics were on the screen and they were as vital as any lyrics I ever heard. And, you know, it's a very boomer thing to be like this Bruce Springsteen song about the riots is just so awkward. Whereas with Bob, it, it just feels like something that someone who was like 26 would write. Like it, it doesn't feel dated to me whatsoever. And it's, it is, it's an incredible blessing. Cause like I said, in 1998, he was going to hang up his electric guitar and never pick it up again. And I was like, okay, well then it's kind of like how people felt between the original Star Wars trilogy and the pre and not knowing the prequels were going to be made, or it's like, okay, I guess that's, that's the end of that. And then 2012, he came out with silver age uh, with a new band and he's made five albums since then. And they've all been fucking stellar. And so we've been essentially gifted this free extra golden age of his. Uh, and so I'm, I cannot be happier that my favorite artist happens also happens to still be making kick-ass music. It's pretty cool. Does he also hit the sweet spot for you in that, he's just famous enough. Like he's never, I mean, hell maybe, maybe you wish he could fill up an amphitheater, but um, there's still a certain intimacy to being a fan of his music and going to the shows and knowing that, you know, for the most part, if you're Bob Mould, you can go to the grocery store and not get stopped by anyone. You know, I don't know. I like, I, yeah, yeah I like being able to go see him at like nine thirty o'clock. Yeah, of course. I like, that's like I said, it's my favorite kind of venue. If he went, if he was big enough to hit arenas and stuff, I wouldn't bitch. I'd go see him at an arena. And I, you know, and I'm too old for the thing where I'm like, well, I liked him before all of you. Like, it <laughs> does, doesn't, it doesn't really matter anymore. And I've also, I've enjoyed arena and stadium shows by other artists anyway. So, but yeah, it's nice that, it's nice that he, you know, that he could, that I can rely on him to come by once a year at a venue I like and put on a great show because he always plays his ass off and it'll have a good crowd and it'll be good and loud and all that, all that shit. He's very, very reliable in the best way. Cool. Before we get to you ranking like your top 10 or so, um, I wanted to have you go back to listening to sugar in the car and have you dip into uh, some of your adolescence and, uh, or I guess you would have been a little bit beyond that at that point, but um, kind of define in detail for me, the the two or three records or songs that that hit you at the right time because I think a, a theme of this podcast is when I have different people come on and talk about bands that mean a lot to them and why they're important why why they're so good or artists um, is uh, I think part of the human condition is when you hit your teens you know anywhere between fourteen fifteen sixteen seventeen eighteen and you find one or two bands or artists that just it's the right right music at the right time kind of right. it's just it sticks to your soul forever in a way. Um, uh, if you could kind of open up the canvas, the diary a little bit and explain uh, to the audience what songs or what records those would have been and how they connected to your living situation or your social situation at that point. I mean, it was when I was in college. So it was, you know, I was drunk, but also kind of lonely. I was dying for a girlfriend. I didn't have a girlfriend, you know, uh, you know, very, very standard college angst garbage. Like what, like things weren't quite the way I thought they would be i had unrealistic expectations for what i thought my college career would be and whatnot and uh you know and then and then you know my friend kevin puts on copper blue and it's like you have that moment with artists where 
you hear them and it's like they made it just for you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, you know, whatever wavelength they're on happens to actually identically match your own brain frequencies. And so there are songs like uh, JC Auto and Hoover Dam that just, I don't know, just, it just felt like, yeah, this is it. This is my life right now. This sounds about right. And so of course, anytime, you know, this is true universally people with music is that, you know, your music's a time machine. You put the, you know, put on Hoover Dam now. And, you know, I go right back to being on like your rail, like a semester abroad in 1997, mm. like looking out the window. Cause Hoover Dam's a song about, you know, places. So, <laughs> so, you know, so, you know, being out and about, especially true now, cause I can't leave the goddamn house. So, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yes, that's well. Hopefully, this is a nice little uh, respite from from the everyday. It certainly is. It certainly is for me. Um, yeah, Hoover Dam's a good one off that. Uh, Copper Blues, very well known. If I can't change your mind, I think it's pretty well known. Helpless is good. Slick is another one that I really like off of that record. Um, yeah. All right, before we rank the records, I did want to ask you about the fan base in general, because uh, every artist, every band has its own little culture within its own fan base. Um, from be it how it uh, correspondence online to interactions in person, how would you describe the uh, mold adjacent fans from, you know, Husker to Sugar to Bob himself? I think it's I think it kind of largely overlaps, although maybe there is a faction that's like, if it ain't Husker, get the fuck out of my face. I don't know. I don't know if that's the case or not, but uh, what I is think it? there used to be okay. that sort of and that's that's actually older than me those are like guys in their 50s like i um like in the late 90s like sort of early age there was something called the sugar list i don't think it still exists anymore and it was like a it was an email that email listserv for for fans of, of bob who had followed him from husker do to to his solo work to sugar and then back again um and like you know it was it was like people trading sort of rarities or um you know or 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 they would hear rumors. One, one guy had an in with Bob, so he would get news about something coming and things like that. And yes, they would bitch because, again, this is when he was dabbling in electronica. So, of course, they would bitch about the electronica stuff or bitch that he hadn't played certain things at shows and whatnot. So it can be a little persnickety in the way that I think a lot of old rock fans get persnickety, like Pearl Jam fans or whatever the fuck. So it's not that different. But, um, but I'm not on that listserv anymore. And frankly, like the advent of Twitter and Facebook obliterated those communities. They don't particularly exist. So like, you know, if I hear about Bob from like another Bob fan, it's usually through like a defunct Deadspin fun bag email or like a Twitter mention or something like that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's nice. It's nice. And, and I'm at the point now where it's just mostly uh, advocacy yeah. <laughs> where it's like. Like if you've not heard Bob Mould, you should listen to all his shit. And and then other people who like him are like, yeah, yeah, people should listen to this shit. And we're not terribly picky about any other thing. Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate. Um, I think he is. I th- I think he exists in what is probably the what I've. I'm one of my favorite bands um, is a band called Guster who does the opening and outro uh, music for this podcast. And I've gotten to know they have, I think they like Bob have the ideal existence. You get to comfortably live off of your art and perform and make records at your own leisure without huge pressure from 
you know, record companies and you have a dedicated fan base and you can still live your life on an everyday basis. You know, you can go where you want to go, do what you want to do. Maybe occasionally someone's going to recognize you. You'll never be hounded. I, th- I honestly think that's the American music dream. It's not like this, you know, absolute mega fame or anything like that. You know, Bob has been connected to certainly one in Zen Arcade, uh, considered one of the most important records ever. But in his own right, he had another awesome commercial success with with copper blue but he's kind of living the uh the ultimate dream there because he's got a supportive base but they also don't have like when you think about husker do and you think about bob like there's not there's not some attachment where it's like oh yeah but the fan base is so snobby like there's that just doesn't seem to exist there and i think that he's just kind of you know intentionally or unintentionally landed in the sweet spot I think you're probably right, although I'm sure because it's music, if he does get occasionally get accosted by a fan, I bet the fans could be really annoying. Yeah. Like, just like, because it's music, so people are really emotionally invested. Like, like I'm a writer, and like, sometimes I get noticed, and people are like, hey, nice work, Drew. And that, that's a nice feeling. But that's kind of it. Like, like, it's nice. And I can just go back to buying bananas or whatever. I was right. Doing. Yeah. If you're a musician... People feel very, very, very much a sense of ownership yeah. over what you do because you're such your music is such a massive part of their lives that they can't they can't quite help but be obnoxious. I'd like I've I interviewed Bob once uh, for how'd GQ. That, how'd that go? And I'm sure I'm sure I was annoying. Okay. <laughs> Hold on. Let's let's can we just slip into that real quick here? Like yeah. that had to have been you know, just an, an awesome moment for you from when you, I don't know if someone came to you or if you pushed for it, but then you get the yes. Um, what was, Oh, the, I pushed, I pushed. for. Okay. So you land it. Um, you know, did you, uh, did you obsess over the questions? Like what was the prep before you actually got to the experience of doing it? And how long did it last? How long was the actual no, interview? No, no, I didn't, I didn't obsess over it. I like, cause by then I was already a fairly seasoned journalist. So I did my journalist thing. Like I did my research and put my questions together. Also, as a phoner, it's easier to inter- It's easier to go through your questions on the phone. Yes. Because they're not seeing you looking embarrassingly at a list of questions the way you would if you were having coffee or something like that. Yeah. No. I- uh, so I got I got all my questions in, and uh, but I definitely told them I was a fan. It wasn't as bad as when I interviewed Josh Homme. At the end of the year, I said thanks for the rock and just completely embarrassed oh myself. Oh my gosh, what are we doing here? Thanks for yeah. the rock. But it was, but it was, it was, uh, yeah. There was definitely, there was no hiding the fanboyism and, and, and the bias. And for him, and uh, and the struts who I've also interviewed, I decided to basically say I'm not going to worry about my ethics on this one. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to be a, a total pimp. I don't care. I think that's fine. You introduced me to the struts, by the way. Good. Uh... Good power. Love the struts. Yeah, good stuff. Love them. Good, 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 good stuff. If you have not checked out the struts, do do go find them. Uh, you may well uh, may well enjoy them. They're like they're like if they're like if the darkness mixed with Foxy Shazam mixed with throw another band in there, Drew. I don't like. They've got like a sex sleaze rock. I don't know. They're they're good. You know, uh, a queen. Yeah, Queen. Yeah, yeah, that, that that works perfectly. Okay, let's get to the list. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, do you go from I, ten we're, to we're going, one? We're going ten. Reveal. We're going ten to one. Okay, we're going okay. ten to one, and a little, you know, little description with each one as to why you'd rank it here. Maybe uh, good parts, the songs you like. Maybe whatever you want to include. If there's a if there's a drawback to a record that has it lower than people might think, for sure. But this is 
This is basically your list, and it also gives the listeners an idea of, okay, particularly once I get down to 54321, maybe these are the entry points uh, where we have it. So go ahead. Uh, 10, I have a tie. <laughs> oh, look I at know. you. <laughs> already, already, already. Uh, I know. Okay. I'm, already, I'm already, uh, hedging my bets. Yes. Uh, I have a tie between a self-titled album from 1995. It's called Bob Mould, but everyone refers to it. All the fans in the know refer to it as Hubcap. Um, and that included, uh, that included the song, I hate alternative rock because he was seen as the birth, uh, sort of the godfather of alternative rock at the time. And he really didn't want that label, so he, he wrote a bitchy anthem about it. It's a very good song. And that's tied with Sunshine Rock, which is his last album, which, uh, like, like the whole, I don't listen to the whole album in its entirety very often, but has a few songs on it that are stellar, including one called Three Dozen Roses that I think is probably the best song he's done in the past 10 years. Just a fucking say, amazing, amazing say that, song. Uh, say that title one more time because I'll search. I did not listen to Sunshine Rock. I'll, I'll see. 30 Dozen Roses. 30 Dozen Roses. Okay. Number nine is Silver Age, and that was his return. His real, like he had done, he had done some albums with bands after, um, like he had already unretired this time and done a couple of, of albums like Life and Times and District Line and a few others with a band that he didn't quite care for. Um, but by the time uh, of Silver Age, he had found John Worcester of uh, Super Chunk and Jason Arducci, the bassist who used to play, I believe, Verbo. And that became his new, uh, basically, power trio, the third one after Puskadu and Sugar. And he's made five albums with them ever since. And Silver Age was the one that sort of announced them. And like, there are a couple songs. One is Keep Believing, the other one's called The Descent, where it's like, oh shit. Like, it, like suddenly, okay, like he's, he's him, very much him. And so it was nice. It was sort of, in announcing of his new prime. So that's number nine. Uh, real quick, I'll just jump. Um, I think Steam of Hercules is another really, really good song off of that record. And uh, as far as I can remember, like I remember uh, Bob hitting my radar because that record in 2012 was regarded as one of the more acclaimed albums to come out in that year. So it was a, it was definitely a, a big resurgence. I, to me, as someone who's not near, like not one fiftieth the fan you are. To me, that sounds like a good entry point, one of one of three or four that I would list in terms of if you've found this, listened, where do I go? To me, that album, uh, Silver Age, would be would be one to find. What do you got at number eight? Yeah, I would agree with that. Number eight for me is Workbook, which is probably too low for a lot of Mold fans. It was the first thing he made after Husker broke up. He went to uh, a cabin. I want to say in either upstate, I think it was upstate New York, and did the Bon Iver thing where he essentially just recorded an acoustic album. That's the one we'll see a little like, which was his, his most popular solo hit.
and uh, very, very tender 12-string acoustic songs all over the place. And just a very, very lovely album. And there's a couple songs, uh, most notably See a Little Light, but also Sinners and the Repentances that I come back to. And also the song Wishing Well, which leads off the song, uh, leads off the album. That used to be uh, the song that he opened up every single concert with. It was like essentially his warm-up song. So instead of coming out and blowing you away right off the bat, he would sing Wishing Well off his ass just to get his bearings and then beat the shit out of you. <laughs> Dig it. Yeah, that's uh, that, that album sounds like someone freed from the restraints of whatever Husker Du had become there. But yeah, it, del- it also to me... Uh, I'm 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 removed from it. Like you put on that album, and I say this not as not pejoratively. Like it sounds like 1989. It actually sounds like uh, what helped set up. I think some of what you know college rock became in the early 90s. I think I think Bob was a little bit ahead of that. But yes, uh, that's yeah. There's some good 12 string on that. Uh, so you had that at number eight. All right. What about number seven? Number seven is Patch the Sky. That was three albums into this sort of new era with him with the with the band with Worcester and Narducci and that I think is the best of the five uh, and includes daddy's favorite and uh, losing time and just very very fast heavy melodic songs so it was like he's been cranking out solid effort after solid effort to the point where it's like like it's very reliable but you're almost sort of hoping for like here's a I need a banger here and a banger there and this one has bangers here and bangers there yeah, um, I think Voices in My Head opens that album, and I find that to be one of his stronger, better openers of his solo work. Uh, number six is Flip Your Wig. That's a Husker Du album. Uh, and so people who don't know, Husker Du was actually a joint effort. Well, it was three men. It was Bob, it was Greg Norton, the bassist, and then Grant Hart, the drummer who has since died. Uh, but Grant played the drums and sang, and so they traded off Lennon McCartney style on albums where – one song would be a song that Bob wrote and sang, and then the other one would be one that Grant wrote and sang. And Flip Your Wig includes one song where they both sing together, the title track. And it's very cool because uh, uh, because because Bob does the chorus, and then Grant comes in, and Grant has a much sweeter voice. Like, Bob's voice is very, like, his singing voice can be nasal and and, and very powerful. And Greg's is very, or Grant Hart's is very, very sweet. And so he would come in over it on the chorus and would sort of accentuate the, the dynamics that they already had. Uh, so the title track and then uh, Private Plane and Games, the whole album is just Oh, and it, that includes Make No Sense, Makes No Sense at All, which might have been Husker Du's biggest hit, I think. Okay. Um, the title track on that album freaking rips, dude. It is yep. so, so good. I find that to be a pretty bouncy album. I like it. I, I like that more than Zen Arcade, personally. Um, Divide and Conquer is another good one on that. Real quick, uh, just in terms of Husker and and Grant, like, uh, you know, where do you land on his vocal style, his songwriting, what he brought to the band? Like, do you do you find them between him and Bob to be fairly? Whereas, like the Beatles, it's not like you know they were uh, John and Paul were pretty much on level ground in terms of the songwriting, what they offered. Sure, there can be some people that'll be like, I'm a Lennon stan and I'm a Paul stan. I get all that. Sh- By the way, right, I'm, right. I'm, I'm a Paul guy because he's got like the best melody ever. But or sense of it. But for you with Grant, um, do you find yourself kind of liking his contributions to Husker just as much as Bob, or do you kind of see him maybe on just a tier below? Uh, I mean, I was always loyal to Bob first, but I liked all of Grant's stuff. Grant also wrote the best. Husker Du song, which was Turn On The News, 
and so I don't, I wasn't against Grant. I liked Bob more just instinctively, but it wasn't an anti-Grant thing. Uh, even though Bob and Grant himself uh, were, were loggerheads for a great deal of Who's Could Do's tenure, and very much so afterward. Yeah. Uh, but um, but no, I, I didn't have any beef with Grant. All right, dig it. What are we on now, six or five? Five. Okay. Uh, five is Warehouse Songs and Stories. That's the final Husker Du album uh, that they yes. recorded. I want to say 1986 or 1987. Uh, they broke up after their manager, David Savoy, uh, died by suicide and threw himself off the bridge. Whoa. And, I knew he yeah. died. I didn't realize he had died that way. I knew he died by suicide, but I didn't realize it was... Wow. Okay. It was very, very, very sad. And I think uh, his death... Uh, they didn't die just because he died or they didn't break up just because he died. It, it just, it brought all the, the simmering tensions to the surface. Uh, you know, the other guys in the band thought Bob was a control freak. Bob didn't think they, they were pulling their weight. Uh, I think he just straight up didn't get along with Grant. Drugs were involved, things like that. And, you know, and I think the, for the past, you know, from after this album until Grant died, I think people were still sort of holding out hope that they would be, reunited at some point they got they reunited once for a charity concert like they sang a couple songs together but then they would do an album or or be inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame and things like that and it never happened uh, they, it was too much legal acrimony and personal acrimony it just never ever happened and in some ways it, i i think it's I, I think it's just better that way because things are never as good as you remember anyway when there are these reunions so i'm, I'm glad that you know, I'm not glad Grant died, of course, but I, I'm glad that they, afterwards, they decide to do their own thing. And what they did independently was good, too. Like, I, I, I bought a Grant solo and liked it. Would you say that Warehouse Songs and Stories is the poppiest that the band ever got? Mm, yeah. Well, Flip Your Wig, I think, is right there. Warehouse was one of the major label ones that they did because they were on, uh, they were on a label called SST, a legendary punk label, for a long time. Until Flippy Wig, I think Flippy Wig was their last, their last one. They signed with Warner Brothers, did Candy Apple Gray, and did Warehouse, and then and then they called it quits. But Warehouse has it's like it's it's all over the place. It's a double album, so it's very double album in that way. Yeah, has, I think it's, it's yeah. I think that was a little too long, Drew, but I do like it. Oh yeah, and I yeah. and I actually I love the You Can Live at Home closer. <laughs> I think that's I love a, You Can. I think that's an awesome closer. All right, down to the final four. What uh, what do you got, number four? Four is another combo platter. It's finally easy listening to the Sugar Album and besides the B-sides that came out of it. The reason that I can put those together is because uh, a lot of the stuff on B-sides was going to be on the final cut of, of Final or Easy Listening, but the last second, Bob decided the second side of the album should have more of a country feel to it than a rock feel, so he left a lot of rock like straight ahead rock songs on and they're fucking great rock songs. So, and I think he has regrets about it. Uh, so between those two, between finally reason listening to the album and besides the compilation, there's like a dozen amazing straight up rock songs like G angel and mind is an Island and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, it's, that's that. I would, that one 
be among my six or seven favorites, but I do like Panama City Motel, Can't Help You Anymore. Those were a couple of songs off of Final or Easy Listening that kind of stood out to me. I feel the record's a little bit stuffed, but you're the expert here, so I'm just I'm offering up my stuff from the peanut gallery that's absolutely not essential. Okay, number three, what do we got? Uh, that's New Day Rising. That's my favorite Who's Gonna Do album. And, uh, and it has, I think, Bob's most famous Who's Gonna Do song, which is Celebrate Summer, which has not gotten old at all. It's just a fucking great like it's like you know when people say like the, the song made them cry like mm-hmm. they're usually lying right <laughs> and, but uh but celebrate summer has made me has brought me to tears a couple of times So before we get to the top two, you don't have Candy Apple Grey on the top ten. I don't because there are a couple of songs. Candy Apple Grey is actually a really great album. I should That's put my it favorite on. Husker Du record. I, to me, Candy Apple Grey is the if if someone has not listened to Husker, to me, I, I find it yes, it's introspective. It's a little slower. I think it's more commercially applicable because it's the first record they had with a major label as well. But that's where, like, I hear a lot of the Queens of the Stone Age stuff that's influenced on it. Um, I Don't Want to Know You If You Are, I think is a great song. Too Far Down is another great song. Uh, but that's just me. To me, that's the one that I – that's the only Who's Do record for me where I actively go back and seek to listen to it. But, again, I'm, not, I'm by no means a huge fan. And I was curious if you would put it on the list or not. No, I, I love that album. And, honestly, it was like, yes, I'm going to pick 10. Yeah, I know. So it, I know, and you even. And I was, yeah, I, I had a hard time picking ten because I like them I all. I'm, I'm, I'm a whore that way. Okay. All right. What do we have left here? Uh, number two is Copper Blue, which uh, it's still probably in terms of albums of his, because actually number one isn't necessarily technically an album, but right. uh, Copper Blue is, I think, probably the finest record he ever made. I think he thinks it's the finest record he ever made. Like he did an anniversary tour where he played it in its entirety with the new band. And of course, I went and saw it, and it was it was fucking fantastic, beginning to end. It's there's not there's not a miss on on the album. It really is just a, a fantastic album. And, and there's a string up front with uh, with Hoover Dam, or it goes helpless, and then Hoover Dam. And shit, I can't remember the, the song. Uh, that's basically one of the best strings in. It's one of the best runs on a on a track list in rock, I think. Okay, dig it. Um, so yeah, that you've got. And yeah, I, I would say if you are a child of the 90s, as Drew and I both are in terms of when we came of age, in terms of discovering music, loving it, uh, I would I would list Copper Blue as, as mandatory listening. Whether you will like it or not, um, I, I think you might, if you've never heard it, I think you actually might be shocked at how modern it sounds given when it was made. It's also, it's very accessible. It's very yes. simply produced. I'm sorry, the, it changes Helpless and Hoover Dam, that, that three song run. Okay. You, you'll listen to it. I think anybody who listens to it and doesn't even like rock would be like, "Oh yeah, that's good." Like they would, they would still, they would still appreciate it. Yeah, I think it stands so tall because it's like <laughs> it's an independently powerful record with some commercial appeal to it. Uh, it's pointed, reserved in some spots. I just think it's—I'll I'll just abuse this phrase one more time. Like I just think it's this great sweet spot for alternative, alternative rock. You're not going to know the songs because they weren't played on radio, but you're going to be like, "Why didn't I hear this stuff when I was 15, 17, 19 years old?" Yeah, uh, totally. 
But all right, and so number one, you have the Beaster EP from Sugar. So before you get to that, you need to explain why Zen Arcade isn't in your top ten. I don't necessarily disagree with it, but that's the most lauded Husker Du record, and yet it didn't crack your list. It is, but I just don't listen to it very often. It was like to me, New Day Rising was when they went full on with melody, and there was enough because um, they they uh, God, I, I'm gonna get. The one before, look at the album before Zen Arcade. Wrong. The name, the name of the album. I can't remember what it was. But, was it Land, um, Land Speed Record or no? No, no, no. Land Speed Record was their first album. Okay. Metal Circus. Metal Circus, okay. which I don't ever ever listen to. And Zen Arcade falls between the hardcore Metal Circus and the 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 more poppy sensibilities of New Day Rising. And I need that pop sensibility in there. It's like Zen Arcade is a double album. And it's over stuff, and there's stuff in there I just don't listen to. So, like, I cherry pick a few things, like, like Pink Turns to Blue and something I learned today and things like that. But I don't, um, I don't revisit the album in full the way that I do, like, Flip Your Wig and New Day Rise. Dig it. Okay. So, Beaster's number one. It's definitely aggressive. Wall of sound. Sound yes. throatier. Feeling better is, a, I, I think, probably the best one off of that. But why do you list this at number one? You know, Fall of Sound, that's, that's a good thing to say because that's a good way of describing it. It's like if Phil Spector... <laughs> wasn't a murderer and was in charge of the heaviest rock band in the world then that's what you would get Beaster, I, I want to say uh, it was recorded at the same time as Copper Blue, except Bob wrote it all like in one night in an attic when he was like pissed about something. And it's extremely pissed off, but insane and insanely loud. But the melodies are just perfect. So there's a song called Tilted that has for my money the best, uh, the best guitar solo in history. And there's a song called JC Auto, which has some of the, the best... Uh, I, is it called a bridge where, like, the cool thing between the verse and the chorus sometimes? A bridge or an interlude, it, it, it kind of depends on uh, how it's put in the song, but yes. I guess. Anyway, the build-up yeah. to the chorus is just makes me want to Pre-chorus sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotcha. And yeah. throw a guitar into a, into a glass wall. It's just it's just the best. It's six songs. It, it ends with, it ends with like, a, a, a church chant, like, as a, as a palate cleanser. But it's so hardcore all the way through without ever losing any of its musical sensibility. So I, I love it. All right, Drew, thank you so much for hopping on, talking some Bob Mould, talking some Sugar, talking some uh, Husker Du. Again, everyone, Point B is the new novel. I'll have all the details both on my site and in the iTunes description for links on where to purchase. Drew, this was awesome and uh, really something I've been hoping and looking forward to doing for a long time. So thank you so much, and I appreciate it. Thanks, amigo. See ya. All right. Real quick, back in the office here to wrap up this podcast. That discussion with Drew ended with a quickness, unfortunately, because as we were recording and had gone on uh, more than an hour, my my young boys were eager 
to reunite with me and were all too uh, all too happy to try and bust into my office and break up that session there. So I had to I had to pull the ripcord uh, in order to get him out in time and not have them interrupt our conversation. So thank you again to Drew McGarry. If you like this episode and you haven't checked out others in the records and rest feed, please be sure to do so. There's a lot of good stuff, a lot of fun stuff, and a lot of variety with more variety to come. Uh, soon enough, I've got some other episodes in the hopper that will be into the feed in the coming weeks and months. One more quick note on Zen Arcade. We touched on it here and there during our discussion. It is a record that's regarded as like a top 20 most important punk record uh, of all time. It's like a, it's like post-punk, alternative rock, punk rock all mixed into one. It's a double album. And to me, it's not something that I seek out a ton with Husker Du. But if you, you know, pop into this podcast feed from time to time just to become more familiar with certain acts or certain things within music and you haven't checked it out, I think you owe it to yourself to do that. So thanks again to Drew McGarry for popping on. Appreciate you listening. Feel free to subscribe. Rate five stars. More episodes soon to come. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon.